0: So apparently the uh, the Dust brothers thought this was the best song on the record. What One what of the, the guys fuck? was like, "I thought this was gonna be the single." Like, yeah. they're so they're they're not always perfect. Beck passed on Um
1: and they're like, "This is the next best song." <laughs>
0: Hello, everyone and welcome to another episode of 1001 album complaints it's the show where friends and musicians dig deep into the backgrounds and stories behind some of history's most influential albums and bands as immortalized in the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die i'm going to give you some history on this artist on the album and then we're going to do a deep dive on a handful of the tracks and at the end we'll all vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die then we'll randomly select next week's album as usual we want to thank you for listening to us do what we love which is talk about records my name's rob i've been playing music for 25 years i've been obsessing about it for even longer and i'm excited to get into this week's record that after some small pre-release circulation around the major industry players at the time he listed advice to the artist, like, you should not release this record. <laughs> you should go back in and make a real album with real songs. Damn, really? And this person thought they were being helpful. They were talking about Beck's extremely successful record called Odelay, released in 1996. Let's jump right in and give you all a flavor of what we've been listening to this week. Here's a clip from the record's biggest hit, and the first single they released, it's called, Where It's At.
2: There's a destination a little up the road From the habitations and the towns we know A place we saw the lights turn low The jigsaw jazz in the get fresh flow Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts Two turntables and a microphone Bottles and cans that just clap your hands Or just clap your hands
0: Okay, as uh, now that we've gotten that out of the way, we'd love to make some introductions of the group, and I'd love for everyone to introduce themselves and give a tweet-length review of Beck's Odelay. Let us know how your week's been
3: going. We're going to throw it first to Tom. All right, everybody, this is Tom. Uh, my tweet-length review is... In an attempt to shed his one-hit wonder status, a mediocre singer and objectively terrible lead guitarist insists on playing almost every instrument, producing, and mixing virtually every track on his next album. Somehow, this recipe for disaster yields a sonically rich and surprisingly cohesive work of art. Nice. (laughs) Thank you
0: for that Tom. And this week on the podcast we have friend of the show and special guest Marty. Marty, please introduce yourself and give us your tweet length review.
1: Hey, thanks again for having me on the show. At some point I'm not going to be a special guest once I do uh, enough of these.
3: My <laughs> You'll tweet be a length. Featured artist, yet? Yeah? <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly.
1: Must <laughs> be one of the dudes. My tweet length review is with Adele, Beck Hansen continues to cleverly string together random words into lyrics that are complete nonsense and are also easy and fun. Standing behind the sample-based grooves of the Dust Brothers, Odile brings a refreshing style of pop music to fill the void left behind by tiring grunchsters. And grunchster is a word that I made up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice. Yeah, I, I I can't wait to get into the lyrical style here because I'm really I'm a little on the fence. I actually quite like it, but it is definitely just throw spaghetti at the wall approach. Okay, I, my name is Rob, and I have a tweet length review for you about Bex Odelay. It is, I think certain records exist just to remind you that there are no rules in music, or in creativity. Everything is acceptable, and everything is possible. The strange and the beautiful mixed together on Odele into
3: a kitchen sink album that actually works. This is a strange album, I really have to say. We can, we can maybe just jump into like the landscape that this was being released into, but I went and looked at the number one songs of the year for 1996, and there is not a single thing that sounds even remotely close to this. We have... The number one song when it was released was "Always Be My Baby" by Mariah Carey. We had "One Sweet Day" by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. "Because You Loved Me" by Celine Dion. "The Crossroads" by Bone Thugs N Harmony. "California Love" by Tupac. "You're Making Me High" by Tony Braxton. And then like. A, like, nine-week period where the Macarena was the number one song <laughs> oh, in God. America. Oh, shit. And then you get No Diggity by Blackstreet and Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton. And you could not be farther away from the sound on this album. Right, and I
1: feel like that list could just keep, keep going. Like, we could be here for 30 minutes of you just, like, listing down <laughs> the
0: songs. So not a lot of uh, white guys with acoustic guitars backed by garbage can drum sets? <laughs> no, no, surprisingly. <laughs> so... Yeah, I I agree. Just to get right off, first impression. Well, it's not my first impression. I should say that we're all of an age. This came out when we were in high school, and we're kind of the target age group for it. And so I had heard it before. In fact, I even saw Beck perform on this tour, and I've seen him a couple times since. But it had been a long time since I had heard this. So I wasn't, I was a little skeptical that this would, about how it would hold up this week. But I was immediately pleasantly surprised, I would say. It is definitely a barrage on the senses. But all in all, a very pleasurable experience for me.
1: Agreed. It's really well done. And what I did when approaching this album is is I, I went to the liner notes and I looked at the samples that were given credit. Because that's a whole part of this album is that they had to pay all these people yeah. to sample parts of their songs from this album. And I was so surprised and happy to go through and listen to some of these songs I had never heard before. Artists I would never heard of before. The Dust Brothers were, were deep in the pocket of obscure music. And, and I'll have to say, I found a lot of cool... I made, I have a whole playlist now of new songs I want to listen to based on the samples that we're taking for this album.
0: And that is definitely one of the fun things about records like this. And we're going to talk about a bunch of those samples. I agree, I had kind of the same experience. So let's, let's talk a little bit about... Tom mentioned when this came out. It came out June 18th, 1996. It ended up selling $2.3 million Total Copies it was extremely successful. They continued releasing singles for it over a year after the original release and I think Beck toured for it for something like 3 years. It peaked at number 16 on Billboard. They made MTV music videos for a whole bunch of these songs and basically it was it was a huge hit. And as Tom alluded to, you know, we want to get into kind of where Beck was at as an artist at this time, but I think no matter what you think about Beck, no matter if you like his music like his style or his various styles that he kind of touches on or into Scientology or not. (laughs) Any of it. You have to. But I think no matter what, you got to give this guy credit for for creativity, for trying new things, for being a kind of a fearless art, a little bit of an artist within a capital A. So a couple other notes about this. Beck was 24 when he made this, which now that we're significantly older than that, just makes me feel bad about my life. But <laughs> they spent $300,000 to make this record.
1: I was trying to find that number, how, how much it cost.
0: I saw it quoted a couple different ways, but I heard Beck himself say 300 grand, and, and most estimates had it above 200 grand. Now I have to assume that a decent amount of that went to paying for the samples. because Because you also hear about the recording sessions, which we're gonna get into, It was basically Beck at the Dust Brothers' small Silver Lake apartment doing most stuff, just the three of them, in that room. So I don't know exactly where the money went other than the sample clearing.
3: But didn't they do that for like a year and a half or something like that? It was a really long time. I imagine they're they're charging the record label a decent amount of money for that. Sure.
0: The cocaine budget alone, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. Let's talk... Oh, and ultimately, this won the Grammy for the best alternative album that year, and the best male vocal for Where It's At went to Beck that year as well. So two Grammys in the pocket.
3: Listen, I know that alternative means something in the sort of like 90s alternative era, but this album is alternative. I agree. It is very not right down the middle. We can talk a lot about Beck's overall approach to songwriting. We can talk about his approach to music making. I distinctly remember the music video for where it's at like that was a really he had a great visual style and i think that he that's something that he kind of maintains throughout his career but that video where he's like on like a roadside cleanup crew and then he's like dancing (laughs) in front of a car wash grand opening on a stage it's it's fucking bizarre it's really good
0: i'll say too that he is a Magnetic live performer. I've now seen him a number of times. Tom and I saw him a couple years ago, in fact, at a small club. That was
3: great. You yeah. know, one of these
0: things where he was playing a festival in San Francisco, and then he also played the smallish club, and we we got to go to that. And he just has a ton of energy. He's visually stimulating on kind of all levels, and that's what I found in, in all the times I saw him. But let's talk a little bit about where he comes from, because I think that'll give us some clues as to how he got. This visual style. So he was born with the name Beck Hansen back in 1970. He grew up in LA, and his parents are also what you might call artists with a capital A. His mom was a factory girl, meaning Andy Warhol's factory, hung out with the Velvet Underground, Warhol. His grandfather, on his maternal side, was part of an artistic movement called the Fluxus Movement which my understanding was like a post-Dada, like Yoko was a part of this movement, but he made his living in art.
3: Basically, everybody in this family
0: did
2: a lot of drugs this
0: (laughs) point. Just a lot. Get this, I didn't even get to the the best credit, which is Beck's dad was a cellist and violist who made his living as an artist. had a high school band with the guy who ended up founding the Kronos Quartet, but even better, made his living primarily working as a studio musician. He played on "What's Going On" the Marvin Gaye album, and mm. on Tom's favorite "Tapestry." Hell yeah! That's just not fair, you know. It's just not fair. <laughs> I, so <laughs> I know. wait,
3: he's a nepo baby, right? <laughs> yeah. He's a nepo, He's
0: definitely a nepo baby. He's a nepo baby. So you know, he grew up with a lot of music and art in his house. He's one of these. He's a kid that had a poetry zine at age fourteen that he was walking around L.A. trying to trying to hawk he learned classical piano when he was a kid and but was also into folk music
3: and delta blues and you know you can kind of see where some of these influences are kind of going so this is one of those things where i feel like it's a little bit like prince where if you just describe to me their personality and what they were like, I'd be like, that person sounds goddamn insufferable. I would never want to be friends with that person. They're just, wait. But if you're like, do you want to hang out with Beck or do you want to hang out with Prince? I'd be like, abso fucking That sounds amazing. These guys sound awesome. Well, here's another thing. Of course,
0: I don't know either of these people personally, but I have heard Beck speak quite a bit. I listened to, well, first of all, I once went to a stage show where – it's a little complex, but it was a combination of that involved him playing songs and also being interviewed. And so I've heard him. I heard him talk in that context. And then this week, I listened to a approximately two hour, almost like an audio book, but it was just him talking about his life. And I have to say, in both cases, I was really struck by how remarkably cogent he is when he speaks mm. about music. Like he sound, he sounds like a very approachable dude, actually. Is what is my point.
3: Whereas every time I see Prince on the mic, he just seems he's riding on someone's back or he's doing something ultra weird. I mean, I would expect a conversation with Beck where he'd be like, you know, uh, you kind of look like a man who's got like termites eating his face. And sometimes I kick soda cans down the road and they make a clickety clack sound Mm -hmm. like just nonsense words. I'm just telling
0: you, I mean, maybe, but because that's what the music sounds like. I get it. But, but, you know, you're giving him like a Dr. John air or something. (laughs) But I'm saying in all these interviews, he just sounds like a normal person who's kind of like, I can't believe I'm this successful. It's art for art's sake kind of thing. He's very engaged with the music and with the art, but he knows that it's ridiculous. That's that's the sense I get from him. Here's something interesting. Odile is his fifth record. Oh, yeah. Did did you guys know that? Yeah. Yeah. He put out a ton of stuff. Uh, The only place you can get the first record is on YouTube. It's called Golden Feelings.
1: Never heard of that.
0: I listened to some of it. I could not listen to all of it. It is nothing short of deranged, I assure you.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well, like, when he, when Loser hit, he was like, living in a rat-infested shed in L.A., right? Like, he was he was basically trying to be this vagabond folk musician type of thing. And I, I give him a lot of credit for that. Like, it sounds like he really was like, I just want to make weird shit and nobody wants to buy it and I'm going to keep doing it and keep being poor. One of my complaints that I always have with people who – bitch about san francisco and it's like it's overpriced and no artist can live here and oh like how are you how do you expect to make a living doing art in a city like this and i'm like well i mean i make a lot of art in this city it's just i know nobody wants to buy it so i have a fucking job i'm going to make art screamo performance art that nobody wants to buy but i should be able to make enough money to live in one of the great cities in america it's like no if you're going to do that you have to expect that you're going to essentially be functionally homeless, or you get another job. And like, I went the I got another job route, because I knew that even if I dedicated myself entirely, I was never going to make anything nearly as good as Odile. But you know, it's that that dedication to the craft, I think it really comes through in this album, particularly the care that was put into that.
0: So let's talk. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think, and that's kind of what I'm referring to that I get from listening to interviews with Beck is that he understands how ridiculous it is that any of this music has succeeded and doesn't really care about commercial success takes a lot of right turns in his career we can kind of talk about some of those but let's talk a little bit about loser the one-hit wonder that Beck is probably most known for that came before this and and kind of sets the tone for this so you're right that back in those days I guess it was Beck was in his um, very early 20s or maybe even 19, he was just hanging out at LA clubs, trying to get stage time, places that that had bands. And one of the things that he made sure to emphasize was that acoustic music, he was just walking around with an acoustic guitar, like trying to play, he called it anti-folk, but it's a version of folk music, right? At, at the core, a lot of these songs have Beck. Maybe not these songs on Odalay, but a lot of Beck material is just him playing acoustic guitar and singing, maybe even with a harmonica. And he was just like, at this time, 1990, that was not a thing. That was not popular at all. In fact, what was popular was the antithesis of that. It was all synthesizers or electric guitars or heavy metal. So he was not cool, even amongst really his peers. But he did manage to get a little stage time kind of while the other bands were setting up. And what he realized, trying to get people to pay attention to him, is that he could be funny. He could just sort of riff on verbally on lyrics. He could do a little little raps that he thought of. He was just really kind of trying to get a laugh. And he found this like place in between sincerity and comedy that I think he probably later regretted a little bit. But in any case, while doing that one day, somebody sees him, and goes, Hey, I know somebody that makes beats like at their house on a little four-track. You should meet him. You guys should do some music together. It's like, okay. He goes over there, and in their first meeting over the course of six hours, they make the track Loser. Apparently, the loser hook is a reference to Beck's terrible rapping.
3: <laughs> <laughs> he's, not, he's not that terrible. He's got, he's got a
0: style. He's better he's than a rock. style. <laughs> and uh, this is one more for Tom and a reference to an old podcast episode. But the drums from Loser are from a cover of I Walk on Gilded Splinters. Really? Yes. Get the fuck out of here. Not, 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 <laughs> not from the Doctor John version now, but from a from a cover of that. That's where they got it. The guitar in that in that track is Beck's guitar, just looped. So right away, and and this is you know this tells you a lot about how they made Odelay too, because it's actually a mix of old record samples and them what you might call sampling themselves, sampling Beck in a lot of cases. Beck plays a lot of the instruments on this, and yet many of them are. You know, what the Dust Brothers said they would do is they'd they'd just play a drum beat. Beck would start playing guitar, acoustic, electric, or bass, or organ, whatever, and then riff on it for a while, and they'd find the one four-bar sequence they really liked, and they'd use that as the basis for a lot of these songs. And that is kind of the same thing that brought him success with Loser. Although, actually, it took almost two years from the time they recorded that kitchen demo, which became a mega hit for him, Loser, to when
3: it was actually... Release
1: so time is not on his side for for uh, producing records apparently.
3: No, wasn't there like a bidding war for the rights? Like, didn't I I remember reading something about how like once that kind of got out into the ether, a bunch of like major labels were like, "Oh, we really want to put your album out," and I think Geffen was the eventual winner. But that like roller coaster ride of I recorded in some shitty kitchen in downtown Skid Row, LA, and I'm living in some rat-infested shithole, and then, you know, you smash cut to all of a sudden labels are just like, well, I'll give you a $400,000 advance. Well, I'll give you a $500,000 advance. Like, this got fucking crazy.
0: It was, and I'm sure he was also pretty blown over by it, but... At the same time, I think he was miffed because most people in the press were calling him even right after the song came out. This is a one hit wonder. This is the definition of a one hit wonder. This guy's a novelty act. He's a joke. This isn't a real song. And that quote I mentioned, he got a lot of those quotes kind of continually through his career of you don't write real songs or maybe you're going to write real songs, you know, later. Like you'll you'll eventually write real songs. These are kind of just thrown together, hodgepodge. Nonsense. You you know, you'll get there as a songwriter. This is after he's already sold a million records, kind of thing. So and the one thing, and I, I heard him emphasize it in two different interviews, that he regrets is saying no to Weird Al, who asked to do Schmoozer.
3: Oh wow. <laughs> really?
0: And he said no because he felt like the press was already attacking him so thoroughly. As a novelty act, he just felt like that would add to it, and he was very clear that that is
3: one of his major life regrets, not allowing that to happen. You don't say no to Al.
1: <laughs> the timing of that song is kind of perfect for you know when we were teenagers, where it's kind of like uh, you know MTV kids, all the bands at the time are singing about like uh, you know I'm this, I'm that, I'm a loser. You know I you know Nirvana, Pearl Jam, all these songs are kind of just like reaching out to you know teenagers at the time. And you know that song's kind of corny to me but you know I remember being a teenager listening teenager listening to it and be like oh yeah he's like you know I'm a loser
3: yeah. No, well, it spoke to me so much more than the thing that came into huge popularity shortly thereafter, which was the I have so much money rap. And I was just like, I don't relate to that at all. Like right. Mace is talking about mo money, mo problems. Like, what the fuck are you talking I mean, just about? Just no problems. 6.25 an hour. <laughs> like,
0: yeah. No, you're right. It came right. At, it landed right at the right time and hit that kind of slacker nihilism that, you know, the same waters that Nirvana was kind of playing in. Right. But I went back. I, it had been a while since I had actively listened to the track Loser. Obviously, I've heard it thousands of times. It still is a really interestingly produced track. Like, it still pops with some freshness to me, in the same way that the stuff on Odalate Well,
3: and for a song that is essentially nonsense, he really does get a whole lot of cool lines out there that still in stick in my head. I can probably recite two-thirds of the lyrics from Loser off the top of my head. And for complete stream of consciousness shit that's pretty impressive because it's hard to have a you know a narrative through line that you can hang on to but there's some really great lines there that my time is a piece of wax falling on a termite that's choking on a splinter it's great fucking it's fine line. it's, it's f- really it's good. Fun and, and,
1: and it's lighthearted. and like a lot of the stuff that was going on there was more serious you know this literature they're 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 nonsense but they're just like fun it's like you're not you know you don't have to take him too seriously.
3: Like a lot of the other bands were like, I'm a loser and I want to kill myself. And he's like, I'm a loser. It was fucking hilarious. Like, right. you know, <laughs> <laughs> who cares? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that, that's kind of the context. He
0: he ended up releasing some Mellow Gold is the record that Loser was ultimately on. That was his third record. So it starts in his discography, just to clarify. It starts with Golden Feelings, only available on YouTube, like I said, completely deranged, like Daniel Johnson inside a Pepsi bottle, shook up. Next comes a, a record called Stereopathic Soul Menor in 94. Then Mellow Gold is released that same year with Loser on it. Then he releases something called One Foot in the Grave, also in 94. And Stereopathic Soul Menor and One Foot in the Grave are basically all acoustic folk. They have his weird lyrics and stylings, but they're not, they're not radio-ready hits in any way, shape, or form. So that's the context, but he has this record contract. Like Tom said, there was a bit of a bidding war, and what he negotiates out of the contract, well, two things. He negotiates the next record. So he comes into making Odile thinking, I'm already considered a one-hit wonder. No one's really paying attention. This is probably the last chance I'm going to get to do something like this with a budget. Like, let's go crazy. Let's be totally unmoored from everything and there's a real kind of creative abandon i you could t- i think you can hear in the music that they just they had a lot of fun with this the second thing is that he had it in his contract kind of similar to the contract willie nelson had back in the day with redheaded stranger where he turned it in and the record company was like yeah these demos sound great but I, you know i can't wait for the whole album he's like no this is it you're releasing it well beck had it in his contract that they had to put out what he gave him and so the record company was really against putting out odelay And for the record, they were really against putting out his future records, Midnight Vultures. And they were really against putting out Sea Change. Every kind of turn he takes, the record company's not into it. But he smartly negotiated that, hey, I'm the artist.
3: You put out what I tell you. It's ready when it's ready, right? Well, both those albums you name-checked, by the way, Midnight Vultures and Sea Change are fucking fantastic. Oh, yeah. I love. Like, Sea Change, I feel like there is that sort of through line in his career. If you listened to all of the records that he had put out previous to Odelay, and said, guess what his next record is going to sound like, you would have never guessed it was going to sound like Odelay. And then you never would have guessed after he put out Mutations that he was going to put out Midnight Vultures after that. And then after Midnight Vultures is, a, is I guess, a hit. I don't know. I loved it. But you never would have guessed he was going to put out like sad acoustic like acoustic sad boy music. After that, like, but T change is fantastic. It's so good.
1: He built up a, a fan base with every consecutive record that would almost mm-hmm. automatically subscribe them to the next one. And you know, as a, a fan of Beck, every new album, it's like it's a good album. It's a good album. It's different.
3: Yeah. When I was in college I was working for the the newspaper and when Sea Change came out I was like well Beck's putting a new album out so I'm just going to review this for the newspaper because it's a Beck album it's got to be good and I was expecting it to be something more in like the Midnight Vultures lane and I remember like writing an article I was just like this is fucking great it's killing me it's so sad I never would have expected it like is Beck okay what is going on here Yeah for sure
0: so, yeah, I think he's someone that, that I, I've always thought of as kind of fearless. He just takes the creative, you know, he goes where the creativity leads him. And he's very, I think there's very few artists, especially ones that have sold a lot of records and have a fan base that aren't af- too afraid to alienate those folks. And not to put them on too high a pedestal, but I just don't think there are that many people out there who have had big hits but are willing to take complete right turns. Like right. That.
1: Let's let's give it a perfect example is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They they've never strayed from their formula.
0: Well, they took one sh- turn, okay. which is when they found under the bridge. And, oh, right, and sure, sure, it. sure, sure.
3: Yeah, yeah. Or or you want to throw it to the other side? A band like Radiohead, which had a huge hit with "Creep," that was like heavy and go, kind of, and then they put out like an acoustic album the next album, basically. They're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, fuck it. I know you guys are into this headbanging shit, but yeah, I'm going to put out a uh, an acoustic album.
0: I think sometimes people, and Radiohead's a great example of another band in this category, where people who aren't fans of bands like Radiohead have this opinion like, I just don't think they get what all the fuss is about. Well, part of it, I think they also make great music just like Beck does, but a big part of it is this phenomenon we're referring to, which is they're willing to take hard right turns. They're willing to really push into new genres and be kind of fearless. And that's such a rarity that there's a certain kind of music listener, including the people here in the studio that really appreciate that and will kind of just roll with it. Even if I don't like all the material, that's kind of irrelevant.
3: Yeah, like how many artists do that? We name-checked Mariah Carey with two huge hits there. When Mariah Carey's new album comes out, you listen to it and you're like, yeah, that's a Mariah Carey album. It sounds exactly like I would expect a Mariah Carey album to sound. And there are a few bands where you put it on. You're like, I literally don't know what this is going to fucking sound like. I have no idea what I'm going to get on track one. Yeah.
0: And of course, the Beatles is the quintessential, I think, example of this band that had success with one style of music, but was willing to keep pushing it. But OK. But of course, there's others. We're getting a little and, off the yeah. track. And, with and, and Ween, But OK,
1: let's keep going. And, and Ween, <laughs> except, they never,
0: except they never achieved success. Right. right yeah. <laughs> yeah, that be <may> it first. <laughs> it's easier. To be, it's much easier to be weird if you don't have success. But still, I still respect it. Don't get me wrong. But to be clear, really, we have, to, we have to draw this line between what's going on on the, the big single from the previous record, Loser, his big hit, his one-hit wonder, so to speak, and what happens on "Odelay," Because they're not as distinct as, as maybe that last conversation is implying. In fact, I think he was conscious of the fact that he wanted to connect what he was doing on Odalay to a track like Loser. But I think what's important is he hooks up with the Dust Brothers, who we've talked about on this podcast before. They produced the Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique, Which has a similar, somewhat similar sound collage feel, as does Odelay. A lot of these really deep crate diving samples, and you know they hold up in an apartment. And they spent something like two years on this record, and they just had a lot of fun. And one of the things that I thought that was interesting, you know, so so one of is that they didn't feel like anyone was looking over their shoulder. No record company exec. The record company didn't really expect anything. They kind of thought Beck's star had already risen and, and was bound to fall from here. But also, the Dust Brothers talked about why they liked to work with Beck is because they said that Beck was someone who embraced they called it a carefree willingness to reject perfectionism in favor of capturing unconventional sounds and loops. It was a refreshing change from experiences working with a lot of other artists who wanted to play things quote unquote right but you know they didn't they didn't want that they liked. They liked weirdness, they liked
3: newness more than anything, and that's something the Beck
0: and the Dust Brothers really connected on.
3: Can we give the Dust Brothers credit here? Because I, I'm trying to think of albums that have a level of density that this album has. And I wrote this note before I did any research on this album whatsoever, and even having listened to it back in the day, I didn't know anything about it. But I was like, this reminds me of Paul's boutique. That was one of the the quotes that I made on there. Just the the amount of different sounds coming at you from all totally. angles. It's it's fucking crazy. There's so much going on.
0: I, I agree. There's it's definitely in a lineage with Paul's boutique. And it was made, what, six, six-ish years later. But one key difference is that I believe on Paul's Boutique, the only organic thing, like the only thing they recorded fresh for that recording was the Beastie Boys' voices. Mm, Everything okay. else is is sample-based. In this case, you have this, you know, the way they kind of advanced the concept, I think, is, I don't know if it's half, or half and half, or probably less than half of the material is actually sampled from old records. Instead, it seemed like what they did was either improvise long enough over over drum beats to get that that one bar of music they were going to loop. So we'll talk about some examples of that that are just Beck playing guitar, or playing worlds or whatever. Or they would listen to a lot of old records and then sometimes kind of reference them without actually sampling them.
3: Which could be called stealing also. I, I mean, the amount of credits that Beck gets on this album is fucking insane. It's like yeah. all of the electric guitar All of the acoustic guitar, all of the bass guitar, the clavinet, the electric piano, the Moog, the the harmonica, like, he plays drums on the track. He is all over this album, and that is, it's just truly impressive. And I I shit on him at the beginning, and I will continue to shit on him for his terrible lead guitar (laughs) skills, but the fact that he can do that many things, it's pretty fucking impressive.
0: Exactly, and we should say the other thing about the sampling because I was—I tried to dig into this as much as possible. I couldn't get answers on exactly how much these samples cost because I'm always kind of fascinated by how the price of sampling a certain bit of material has changed throughout the years. I long ago heard an interview with the RZA talking about oh, what's the song that they sample for? Can it be all be so simple? Oh God, yeah, yeah, the—it's um, it, it, some old '70s track from Years, f- maybe from from the first Wu-Tang record and he talks about he he was talking in the interview about how they sampled it on the first on 36 Chambers and then after laughter comes tears, right? <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. right. After
3: I, laughter comes tears.
0: But yeah. then but then for whatever reason he was harkening back to that track 10 or 15 years later and had to go pay for the sample again and it had like 10x
3: in price by that Well, point. Y- you know why that is. And this is one of those fucking just capitalism stories is it used to be that like either the artist owned it or like the artist and the record company like co-owned it. And then you get to this phase where people just start selling their catalog to like private equity guys who are like, "How can, how can I monetize your catalog? I have this yeah. list of songs I can now put in commercials and shit like that." And so the artist doesn't get to make the decision. I think when the Big Lebowski came out, there was a song that they wanted to use in the Big Lebowski that was from the Rolling Stones, and one of the, a guy who was like connected to the Rolling Stones owned the rights to that out to that song, and. He watched the movie, and when they got to the point where he said, like, can you turn this off? I hate the fucking Eagles. He just stood up and was like, you can have it for free. I hate the fucking <laughs> Eagles. <laughs> it's the people connected to the music are no longer making the decisions about how to set the price. It's like a yeah. conglomerate of, of song owners are now setting the price. Right,
1: like, like on, on Jackass, it's like... Contains a sample from It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, Bob Dylan, published by Special Writer Music, performed by them, courtesy of Decker. It's like a long, yeah, exactly, cold, yeah. big, complicated thing. So a lot of people got to get paid, you know?
0: Yeah, Totally. And then I heard, I read an article with the person who, or one of the people who is in charge of helping bands clear all these samples, who's some kind of record company employee. And they talked about how one of the things you're negotiating is not just a one-time price, but potentially a price in perpetuity. Like, they want a piece oh, yeah. of of Beck's royalties. But anyway, one, one distinction between Paul's Boutique and, and this is that they did clear all these samples before they released it. Whereas Paul's Boutique, you know, only about six years earlier, they... Attempted to clear the samples after the record was already out of the bag. So times was pretty quickly.
1: It was a new thing at the time. Yeah, yeah.
0: So the other thing you like to think about with this kind of music, this like sound collage music, is how literally, logistically, how they were making it or technologically. So I think in the Beastie Boys time, they had to have been using tape and, and like splicing tape together. In this case, they were using an early version of Pro Tools that apparently after every take, the computer required a half hour to compile it so they could play it back. (laughs) Yeah, I read that. That's ridiculous. So that must have been very frustrating. Anyway, so they get to the end of this process. Beck and the Dust Brothers work on all this cool stuff. We're going to start talking about the songs and play some clips shortly. And ultimately, the label did not want to release it. And it got circulated to some bigwigs, and that's where that quote came from, that somebody, Beck said it was a major producer, heard it before it was released, and said, you should not release this. Somebody from the record company, trying to be nice to Beck, was like, don't worry, this is a transitional record for you. You're going to write some real songs soon. Jeez. <laughs> like, that was, everyone felt that way. No one believed that it could possibly be a hit, but they could not possibly have been more wrong. The first single, as I mentioned, where it's at, hit the airwaves shortly before the record landed, and was a major success. So let's jump back in to where it's at and play a little snippet of that once more and then talk about it.
3: So if you are a longtime fan of the show, you've probably heard us talk about the Wurlitzer a whole bunch on the show. If you were wondering what a Wurlitzer is, if that has just gone over your head, this is a Wurlitzer. This opening on this opening piano riff on the song, that is that just butter-smooth Wurlitzer sound. It's so throwback, and it's so cool, because it is an acoustic instrument. There's actual, like hollow tubes that are being struck by a hammer to make that sound and it's so beautiful it's so silky smooth
0: yeah it's it's an amazing little riff and i heard beck say that he had had this piano riff in his head for like years and he was just waiting for a moment to use it he just kind of had it in his back pocket for many years from screwing around on the piano and the way that they it's it's a prime example of on this record how you it would be very easy to believe this came from a seventies record diving gym, but in fact it's them playing and sampling effectively sampling themselves.
1: I'd assume that that was a, it was a sample
3: because it's just too good. Yeah, if that was a sample, like I want to hear the song that that sample from because <laughs> it's great.
0: I just I also like this idea and I relate to as a guitar player, maybe all of us as players. This idea that you keep riffs in your back pocket, just waiting for the right time to bust them out. Like Tom Morello oh, yeah, yeah. mentioned yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah. about, yeah. uh was it the bomb track
3: riff or something? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I do that. I do that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as a drummer, I'm sure you have like some. You're like, this is uh, a sick oh, yeah, beat. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not for this yeah. song. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a sick not, beat. Yeah, it's, not the,
1: it's not the right time for me to to release yeah. my back pocket riffs.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when those
0: things line up, like they do here, I mean, this is just a great effing track. Like, really, really successful. Starting with the groove, of course, I I have to say that the that was a good drum break line. Still, just makes me chuckle. Yeah, it
3: does because it was a good drum break. It really was.
0: (laughs) It's very David Byrne, who's
3: another sort of hero of mine. You know that that sense of humor. I just want to know what fucking record executive listened to this song and was like, "No, you got to go back. You got to go back. This is not going to be a hit. Nobody's going to like this." A lot of these songs.
1: Not only yeah. that one, but it's it's weird. It's like what what were they looking for? It's it's very odd. Yeah,
0: especially in the context of thinking I want another loser because it's not that distinct. I admittedly not much else around that time as Tom pointed out sounded like this. And it has a lot of weird sounds on it, and believe me, there's plenty of other weird sounds on this record. In fact, if you just pitched me this record and said, "Hey, the, you know, there's tons of static bursts and hugely distorted screaming, but you're going to love it. You know, I wouldn't believe you, but it it ultimately comes together in this great pop stew and th- and this track is a prime example. So, here's another little thing I wanted to point out, just a little production detail that at one at the 1 minute mark exactly, which is about 2 seconds before he actually says clap your hands, they start mixing the hand clap in before. Before he says it oh, into the sweet. snare. Oh,
1: that's uh oh that's money.
2: Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts, two turntables and a microphone, bottles and cans that just clap your hands, or just clap your hands. Where's
3: yeah, and then they kind of drop everything but the Wurlitzer with the claps for like a little break before they come in with the where it's at. It's so yeah. g- it's very thoughtful. Like, this whole album's very thoughtful.
0: It's very thoughtful. We're going to get to the complaint soon enough, but I wanted to mention something that will resonate with us as having been in the recording studio, is that the way they got the chorus vocal. Beck is the only person credited with vocals on this. So the way they got the, the chorus vocal, which sounds like a big gang, was just Beck singing it again and again with different voices, Super excited guy, super quiet
3: guy, old man voice. <laughs> That's what that is. It uh, is so fucking hard to make yourself sound like more than yourself. Like, I definitely have done this in the studio, I've been like, all right, let me try to do a slightly different version of my voice. And it all just sounds like me. And it just sounds like a lot of me singing weird and not a lot of people. Pretty
0: classic. The other, a couple of other samples they used. Also, one other sample is they found a like a sex ed album from the sixties called sex for teens. <laughs> and, and that that's where the ACDC line comes, comes from. <laughs> so that is a sample, but then the let's make it out, baby is just some dude who stopped by the studio
3: one day. When they got on the mic. Oh, he seems like he'd have an eclectic group of hobo friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so, I also love this concept of he's like, Alright, I got this hook line. I got two turntables and a microphone. It's a great line. It's a throwback Beastie Boy style line. Yeah. How about we just have a robot say it one time? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, yeah, great. Sounds good. Well, if
1: if you listen to that Needle to the Groove song, the only credited sample from that from that, it's very old school rap. It's two dudes rapping turntables with a like a vocoder. Doing these mm. these middle mm. parts, and so yeah, that when I listened to that. I was like, okay, I kind of get how how that's kind of interwoven to the kind of idea behind this song.
3: Yeah, he's like, I got two turntables and a microphone, and a clavinet, and a moog, and a harmonica, <laughs> right. and a xylophone, <laughs> and, <laughs> and turntables, and the Echo Plex, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah. So one of the things Beck talked about a lot in that breakdown of his life and when he was talking about this record, but also in, in Through Midnight Vultures, was how into the 80s he was. Early hip-hop records, 80s synth, and how at the time, you know, between 1992 and, I don't know, 2000, liking the 80s was not cool at all. Like, no one was into that stuff. So the idea of putting these super 80s-sounding robot voices
3: on things was was powerfully against the grain, we can say. I will say that, My experience listening to this album from start to finish, not just our focus list, but like from start to finish, I remember the song Devil's Haircut, and I remember not liking that song. I I still kind of don't like that song. I still don't think it's very good. I don't think that was a good opening track to represent the fullness of what you were going to get on this album, but... Where it's at is so powerfully cool. Like, I don't understand how anybody could listen to this and think it was uncool. It's so fucking cool. I just, like, how can you not dance and almost kind of strut when you're listening? Like, if you're listening to this in headphones and, like, walking down the streets in your city, you'd be strutting down the street. You can't just plod along. That's the
0: other thing Beck said, is that this is the track that gets crowds, even to this day. Like, it feels like the great equalizer at his shows, and he's just... He was just like I'm. Really, odd and happy and lucky that I've made something that actually gets people at that level of into it. You know, and,
1: and, and back to what you said earlier, Rob. Kind of Beck having this this kind of access to these obscure '80s songs that no one was probably. I mean, even going back and listening to like that, I've never heard any of this stuff. It's just blowing my mind. So him being totally. hip, him being hip to all this, you know, stuff when he was making this album, just like you're. You, he he could borrow influences that no one would ever get. And I think a lot of art, Bob Dylan did that a lot. A lot of artists did that. We would find these artists that no one really knew about and kind of just like take from them a little bit and and make, them make your own sound, you know, kind of borrowing from them and, and kind of did that in this album, sure.
3: Well, and Marty, you're like my sort of go-to guy for – I like a bunch of weird, obscure, ass, old shit. <laughs> so, like, the yeah, fact yeah, that sure. you're even like, I don't fucking know what any of these songs are. That's true.
1: It's mind blowing. It's levels like, down. Wow. Yeah. yeah, like you know, Dust Brothers. You know they they're responsible for Hanson and Umbop. Hell but... yeah!
3: <laughs> it's a and that's a good song. I, I, uh, okay, <laughs> I think
0: <well. laughs> yeah they 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 got a lot of work, but I don't think they ever made anything after Paul's Boutique and this. I couldn't really track down another same, record that, that quite sounded like this. Same, right? But let's let's talk briefly about the credits. So, there is a real sax player on this. Later in the record they use a prominent sax sample, but this has a real sax player called David Brown. There are 3 people credited with organ on this. I don't really I don't even know how that's possible unless they each played like one bar and then it just got looped at different times of the song. It's a little hard to parse. There is a real trumpet player. Beck is credited with bass electric piano, and, sadly, electric guitar, because now I'd like to point you back to Tom's tweet, (sighs) which is, what the fuck is up with this solo? I use the term very loosely at 234. (laughs)
3: It's like, it's almost like that's the point. It's almost like the point is to make a shitty guitar solo. Because he does it yeah. so much on this album yeah. where it's yeah. like terribly shitty guitar solos. And it it fucking works. It works. I don't know why it works. To me, that this one in
0: particular, and there are a couple others, are a really odd choice. But they're clearly purposeful because this was poured over so thoroughly. I think there are a lot of other times where the guitar is just making sounds and it's kind of like sounds for sound sake i get it a little more in some other contexts and i agree he's not an amazing you know guitar player as as evidenced by this but in this case everything else about the track is like so smooth so refined those bad notes just feel really bizarre and also you know if i had a complaint about this song and and some other songs in the record, it, it goes on longer than it probably needs yeah, was, to. Yeah, that was one of my
1: notes, too long. It's, what, it's, it's pretty much the only note I wrote the song is too long.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and so cutting that guitar solo would have been mission number one. Well, talk about cutting the guitar solo. Like, what solos didn't make it? What did he leave <laughs> on the cutting room floor? What was he like, ah, oh, it's a little too bad. We got we to gotta work on that. this is obviously can't be take one. This will probably take fifty or something like that, and you get this fucking sound out of it. It's obsc- well, when you hear how they made it. it,
0: he probably just riffed over the entire length of the track, and they just purposely went and found the worst piece or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It has to be purposeful, is all I can say. I don't know why, but playing against expectations, Rob. They're just trying to, you know. I, yeah, it's a commentary on. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. What it's a commentary on. Okay. Let's move it right along to, uh, we're gonna jump around a a little bit on this list. Uh, Well, actually no, I think from here we'll follow the track list of the album pretty closely. So the next thing I wanna talk about is actually track four called The New Pollution.
1: I'm going to play uh, a little a trivia game here. So I'm going to give you three options. So so on this song, and you might know it, which is the credited sample? A, the drum beat. B, the sax part after the second chorus. C, the beginning uh, doo-wop ditty.
3: I feel like the doo-wop ditty is Beck. It's just so weird that I feel like it's... This, like, 1950s, like, Red Scare fucking type of sound. I, it's got to be him.
1: Uh, you're, oh, you're right. You're right. That is him. Rob. Okay, that is,
3: it, that is him.
0: Yeah, I, well, I knew it was the sax. It
3: was the
1: sax part. Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's from a song called called Venus by yes. Joe Thomas. And
1: that song is sick. It's a sick <laughs> song. I listened to it earlier. Go ahead.
0: Actually, I got I a question because I've never had this experience before. I looked it up on Spotify. Uh-huh. Did you listen to it on Spotify? Or yeah, YouTube? it was all fucked up. It's fucked up. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the record was all like scratching and shit the half
1: the time. Nothing but it's else still, it's cool. on the
0: record. Nothing else on the record had that problem. It, that was very weird. It's a bad upload, and I've never heard that before on Spotify. But I
1: still got enough of it. <laughs> <to enjoy laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> I went. I
0: went and listened to it on on YouTube. Yeah, to get like the full vibe. But yeah, it's right. it's a cool track. Yeah. I heard that the the opening vocal though was like a reference to something they heard on some weird christian family recording from from the 60s and that you know i don't they were just like directly referencing something they had heard on a, on a record but not sampling it
3: i gotta say that first like 15 seconds of the song there is more production put into that so than good. most 90s albums have in their entirety that was my first note is holy shit this opening
0: stings dude it's so good. I love it so much.
3: Yeah, it does. And how it comes together
1: is, is 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 wild. This is a good good song.
3: Well, it's like who who is pitching? Like I'm just gonna have this sound that like I've like misclicked on something. It's like ding 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 <laughs> in there, just like a monotone computer sound that sounds like an error. That's what we're gonna put yeah. on there as like the underpinning of this very smooth Some Mr. Sandman esque shit. <laughs> shit. You know? Well, yeah. What is the instrument?
0: Do it? Do we know what the instrument? Is that that does that run down in the very beginning? The waterfall. Like what the like heck is
1: flute? that? Or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a, yeah, it sounds like a flute.
0: yeah, it's it's a it's an excellent opening. But to your point, Tom, some of the shit they get away with in terms of just putting straight up noise on this record and somehow making it work in most cases for me is is great. I so I basically wrote that I think the opening kind of makes it for me. I think texturally the song is really good. I don't think the songcraft is. Nearly You know, it's not as strong here in general, but as a production, I, I still dig
3: this song. You know what I got? I got very big Tomorrow Never Knows vibes out of this song, hmm. uh, very specifically in the bass line. I, I felt like it was a very like Tomorrow Never Knows kind of yeah, bass line. and the drums too, I think. Yeah. yeah. And Beck on bass. He holds it down, man. He's he's like he's not a flashy bass player, but he is a f- perfectly in the pocket bass player. He's got like a almost like a Stevie Wonder-esque approach to it, where he's like, I'm not doing anything to blow your mind, but I'm not fucking up at all. I am just holding it down. Yeah. Yeah, this had a wild video too, man. I think that the guitar melody that, that he does. It illustrates something that he does really well on this album at its best, which is that it's almost the Steely Dan-esque or Beatles-esque, like, continuing the melody on multiple instruments type of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you get a melody and then something else almost, like, takes that melody over and then continues it on through another part. There's a lot of, like, continuity to these songs. It was really great.
0: Yeah, because the vocal melody is like, she's got a cigarette on each banal yeah. 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 They connect. Yeah. I always think, too, you know, I think it, it's really hard to write those kinds of guitar parts. It's hard to lay back that much in a lot of places. I know that maybe it's the bass's job to lay back, but I'll speak as a guitar player. The fact that I know that what they did here was they probably played this drum track for Beck and they said just play a bunch of guitar stuff over it. He probably played for 10 minutes, and then they went back over the track and found, you know, the 8 or 16 bars that they wanted to use, and they just repeated
3: that. You know, it helps to be able to lay back if you fucking suck at lead guitar. <laughs> he really does. I don't, I don't know. I've seen a lot of lead guitar players, and that's uh, doesn't always help. Well, Beck's got the taste to know that he sucks at lead guitar
0: and that there's a time and a place for it. I'm just saying like this process of sampling yourself to me is interesting. Like actually I would like to I'd like to try it at some point cuz I think it would just take your brain in some different directions of what it meant to write a part, to just have these little little
3: snippets of parts and then have to work within that uh, little constraint there. I did have a note here that like back in the day this was not one of my favorite songs, but listening to this having been in a studio and tried to make music for many years now, understanding the amount of work and layering that has to go into getting this rich of a sound. It's it's impressive in just the technical capability that needs to go into making this happen. I, it's still not my favorite song on the album. It, it's still not even like close to my favorite song on the album, but I, I do really respect the amount of depth that a track like this has.
1: Also, there's a uh, speaking of that guitar riff, it kind of has a uh, you might have read this, but someone someone said it has kind of a, a tax man vibe.
2: Hmm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's
0: a good call. Okay, let's move it right along to the next song we're going to talk about, track seven, called Jackass. <laughs>
2: Tying a noose in the back of my mind. If you thought that you were making your way to where the puzzles and pagans lay, I'll put it together. It's a strange invitation.
3: I fucking love this song. The song is so good. And it doesn't make a ton of sense, but <laughs> I still get exactly what he's talking about, and it's kind of sad. I loved Sea Change. I still love Sea Change. Sea Change is a great album, and this points in that direction. I feel like some of the songs on this point in the direction of Midnight Vultures. Yep. Some of the songs point in the direction of Sea Change. Well, I guess this song specifically uh, points in the direction of Sea Change. And it's a great, simple song. There's juvenile lyrics, but... It really works, and another production note is that what is that? Is that I think it's a xylophone sound that do 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 doo do doo do That's kind of layered over the top of this. It works so well. It's really good. I don't know. I like. I, I think was that's a little some kind of
0: organ. That's the sample. Yeah, yeah. yeah from- that's that's
3: Van Morrison's oh. old band
1: doing oh. a cover of a Bob Dylan song. And so this song for me, I've heard that version of that song so many billions of times and I know that more than the Beck song That oh, okay. the, sam- the sample yeah. is just too obvious it's just too obviously that song which I feel like everyone knows
3: Oh, of course I should have known that old Van Morrison's old band <laughs> sampling a Bob Dylan cover. Like, no. This is what I'm talking about, Marty. You know some obscure ass well, Yeah, yeah. Well, not a
0: huge surprise, but yeah. I, I didn't know the tune and in fact, this is one of the ones that led me to go, "Damn, I need to listen to more of them. This is pretty cool." It's them doing a cover of It's All no- Over Now baby blue, which we also listen, uh, talked about on the podcast. But
1: but what I what I like about about his handling of this of that sample is that you know the original version of that song. I mean, that it's that riff just goes through the whole song. They're just basically singing that Bob Dylan song over it. He's able to take that same thing and unhear the Van Morrison singing and add a whole new verse and melody over that groove. Which, which it, to me is admirable. It's just a, it's a whole different approach on just a, a melody that yeah. he had to have heard a million times and been like, okay, I got to un. I got to un-Van Morris and Bob Dylan myself and have my own approach to the song. And so, yeah, it's pretty admirable.
0: Yeah, that was so... I do like the song, too. I think it's great, kind of classic Beck folk song. And like Tom said, it kind of points towards both his future and his past, but sort of that other mode of Beck, which I also like, the sea change, mutations version of Beck. You know, that said, after I listened to the Them recording, I was slightly underwhelmed because of what Marty said, just that the sample kind of goes throughout the track. And like, I understand they were trying to construct something relatively simple, but compared to the heavily sound collaged other tracks, I don't know. It's, it, it took it down a, a little notch for me. Although here's just an interesting thing. Cause I was realizing I should listen to more them, which was the band that Van Morrison was the singer for before he went solo, but also had a couple of the guys that went on and founded thin Lizzy. Yeah. oh shit. learn that this week. Wow. I never heard a note of them, ever So I'm going to remedy that, by the yeah, way Yeah, no, you have, actually, because they did the original version of Gloria That, like, brought Van Marsen to prominence mm, Okay so, so you must have heard that recording I've, I've heard yeah. that recording, yeah Anyway, but I guess Ireland music scene's not not super, too big So, Thin Lizzy, Them Also, the mm-hmm. Them album that this is on, is called Them Again
1: Also, like, the children of Thin Lizzy started, like, Belle and Sebastian and the Cranberries They're... Wait, what? No, I'm just kidding <laughs>
2: oh okay <laughs> i
3: was gonna say wait a second see <laughs> okay. um uh yeah i was gonna say bell and sebastian are like the whitest band in the universe <laughs> and also are they, are, they, well, they're, are, they, are they they're scottish they're, they're, right? scottish. Okay, they're yeah, scottish
1: they're scottish yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. i bet Cram, cranberries would
0: be good yeah <laughs> okay let's move it along to track 10 sissy neck
3: Is my favorite track. Is there? Is there? Is that a sample? That uh, the the whistling at the beginning is that a sample? It is. It is from
0: something by a guy called Dick Hyman. The Moog and Me. It's called Dick Hyman. That's the guy's <laughs> name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> yeah. So this one has a lot of samples in it, but I I just I really like the songwriting for something something about the the hook. The, the chorus it really gets me on this. The writing my will on a three dollar bill. It's kind of country. Yeah, I just like I like the songwriting. Yeah, it's got the country. They did get a real pedal, pedal steel player in for this, uh, but the bass in this one is a sample of a band called Country Funk. <laughs> terrible and name. a song
3: called A Part of Me, also a terrible name. <laughs> yeah, I will say that I did like this song, but at one point he rhymes Arizona with manners. That just doesn't work. <laughs> they don't even come close to rhyming. But he delivers it in like an A, B, A, B style where it's like it's supposed to rhyme and it just doesn't. But it's like Arizona <laughs> and manners are close enough that maybe you think he's going for some kind of Dickensian slant rhyme thing. But no, doesn't work. See,
0: t- see to me, this is this represents the, the perfect blend of the two sides of Beck or maybe it's the Dust Brothers and Beck, however you want to call it. On, on the record. But speaking of lyrics, the one I that just cracks me up is he says, Everybody knows my name at the Recreation Center. Like that's a brag. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
3: It's great. I credit him with a very good use of double tracked vocals on this. Because it is not necessarily a constant harmony going on. It's not a constant doubling, but the way that they are mixed They sit as two separate entities, but they also work together really well. It's just, it's really good double track vocals. And it's not easy to make your double track vocals not sound like an imperfect yourself twice or like two distinct parts that are trying to, you know, play off of each other. This is somehow rides a line very well. So I, I got a little quote here from the Dust Brothers talking about
0: what we've already touched on, which is the way they came up with some of these guitar riffs and. One of the Dust Brothers says, it's amazing when you work with someone so talented how quickly you can write a song. And it's probably helpful for Beck to have people like us working with him because he's able to just free up and free associate when he gets on an instrument, doesn't have to think about what he's playing. And then you've got me and Tom, the other Dust Brother, as watchdogs waiting for that golden moment. And When he hits it, we go, oh, my God, you just did it. That was it. You nailed it. And he's like, what? I was just tuning the guitar. We're like, no, whatever. (laughs) It's done. Jam. Print it. So I think there's actually a section in this
3: song with him trying to attempting to tune the guitar, and they just looped it. I mean, it's not that not that off from most of the solos.
0: So the other the other uh, timestamp I put on here was 157, where they get a breakdown section out of these terrible phone dial noises. <laughs>
3: I can't believe I don't hate this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sound that's supposed to be annoying, like it's, it's made to be annoying to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were in a band with a guy who made noises like this, and it wasn't fun, but this really works for me. I don't think we're ever in a band with anybody nearly as talented as Beck. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> that, or yeah, that's... we were also maybe never as tasteful as the Dust Brothers to be able to capture these moments of brilliance in the midst of annoyance and say, that's the one. That's the four seconds that you need. This is a fine line between brilliance and noise, to be honest.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. Speaking of that, brings us to the last song on the focus list, track 12. It's called High Five, in parentheses, Rockin' the Catskills. Skills.
1: This is my least favorite song, of the ones that we've listened to.
3: This song fucking blows.
1: <laughs> I had read that that the Dust Brothers worked with Corn, and I think this song <laughs> be, would be would be better suited for Corn, yeah. than it was for Beck.
0: I agree. I put this on as the low light. You know, even the albums we love and we've been praising this for the most part have low lights. I am not it's- a Corn
3: fan, but. Corn is better than this song. This song's really
0: bad. <laughs> so apparently the uh, the dust brothers thought this was the best song on the record. One of the guys the was like, "I thought this was going to be the single." Like yeah. they're, so they're they're not always perfect. Like Beck yet. passed
1: on Umbop and they're like, "This is the next best song."
0: <laughs> but in in reference to the song, one of the things I heard Beck say that I thought was interesting just tells you where the times were at. He's like the only people using Moog synthesizers were Stereolab and like a couple other indie bands. So you could just go to pawn shops and get them like really cheap to the point where he says he had a pile of them. And he'd bring one in and just use it until it
3: broke, and then he'd go get another one.
2: That's bullshit. That's bullshit, dude. That's like back in the day,
3: Marty, when you worked for Goodwill when we were in college. Oh, I never saw
1: one fucking mug ever. ever. No, no, no. <laughs> not.
3: I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that you would just come home with like a bag of vintage clothes and then wear them for a week and then you'd just donate them back. And you're oh, like, of there's course. like one time use clothes. Like, I'm never, I'm never wearing oh, yeah. these pants again. Oh
1: yeah. Oh my first, my first day there, my boss was like. Hey, if you wanna walk out of here with a bag, I'm not gonna ask you what's in it <laughs> and so I took that to so i took i so i took that meant back my car up to the uh Exit every night and load it up.
3: There was one time where I believe it was me and Alan just like walked up there, and you just like were like, "Take this couch back to our house," and we just like carried a couch like three <laughs> miles. It was probably more like a three quarters of a mile home, but you were just like, "No, no, it's cool. Nobody gives a shit. Just walk out of here with this couch. Who cares?"
2: <laughs>
3: uh As soon as this episode is published, Goodwill Incorporated is going right, to come after yeah, you, Marty. Exactly. Already- <laughs>
1: it's like, oh uh, fuck, my criminal past is now being exposed. <laughs>
0: Okay, I think we've probably talked Odele to death here. It's about time to start wrapping things up. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do what we always do. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go around the room and we're going to vote, is Odalay by Beck a must-hear before you
3: die? We're going to send it first to Tom. I'm going to go yes. There are some great, great highlights on this album. There are some certain lowlights but I was never bored listening to this album. Every single song had something that I could grab onto. Even if it wasn't for an entertainment entertainment aspect, I could always gravitate to something that I was like, this is just clearly well thought out. There's a lot of care. Even if I didn't like what you were going for, you were going for something, and you put a lot of work into it. So, yeah, you should totally listen to it. It's 51 minutes. It's not a short listen. For the CD era of music, it's not egregious, but it's not a short listen. But it's absolutely worth your time. Awesome, Marty. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna agree with Tom. This is this is this is worth uh, a listen. You know, I'm, I'm always a big fan for the underdog. It sounds like you know Beck got a lot of crap trying to release this album. Uh, got a lot of pushback, but he you know took control of the album and made it. A really good album. You know the songs. Are, the production's great. The songs are really good. A lot of credit to the Dust Brothers. You know, music like this for me, I you know I, I can only listen to it so much before it it becomes com- really boring. But if you are someone who's unfamiliar with this album, definitely worth listening to before you die.
0: Awesome, thank you. Yeah, this is a really easy one for me. It's it's also a yes for all the reasons you both described. But ultimately, it comes down to. Bold choices. I want to support bold, creative choices. And even more than that, I love it when weird wins. And this feels like a prime example of that. These were big hit songs, and they are weird. So I I appreciate that, and I have to continue supporting that. There's just a lot of interesting stuff here. Your ears need to hear it. So that is that. Beck, sir, you're on the list. Congratulations! By the way, I didn't even get to say my favorite Beck anecdote of all time, which is one time I went to an acoustic Beck show. It was before Sea Change came out, but it was kind of a smallish theater show in San Francisco. He was playing acoustic, mostly acoustic numbers. I went out into the lobby to ask for a beer from the bar. I said, "What do you have on? What do you have in terms of beer?" And they said. We only serve Bex. <laughs> <laughs>
3: that's good. I said that's, that's great. I love this guy. I'm gonna buy everything he does. I wasn't. There was a. There was an anecdote from somebody that we knew that was. It was around the same exact time where they said that they just went to get a taco. Like a burrito in a taqueria, and Beck was just sitting on a stool playing an acoustic guitar in a taqueria randomly before he was playing a show that night. Oh just like, yeah, I remember. Well, yeah, I'm just about hanging that out too. and playing an acoustic guitar. Why the fuck not? You know, I'm Beck. I'm a weirdo. I got a free burrito out of it.
0: it. It was at that place, Pancho Villa, on 16th, <laughs> totally, yeah, Valencia yeah. Street. Yeah, yeah. I heard I heard the story. I wasn't there or anything, but yeah, he's a super cool guy. Congrats, Beck. You're, you're, you're great.
1: The other thing I read actually was by Stephen Malcolmus that said the album should have been called Oh, Delay.
3: How <laughs> long it took to come out.
0: <laughs> so pithy, Stephen Malcolmus. <laughs> of pavement fame. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the cover, which I just realized I just learned this week is a, actually a dog. Yeah. It's oh, like yeah. the dread dog. Yeah. It was
1: looks t- t- like a bath t- t- mat, t- t- but Taken but... by a famous dog photographer. Oh,
3: which one of the famous dog photographers? <laughs> probably only, there's probably only a couple. Okay.
0: That about wraps it up here. All we have left to do is to get our homework for next week. But before we do, dear listeners, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you've listened with us this far, first of all, thank you so much. But we need a favor. Our Spotify rating is below four stars somehow. I assume an army of Eric Clapton fans or Nenna Cherry stands has pushed us down the rankings. I need you, if you're listening on Spotify right now, or even if you're not, to go to that Spotify to give us a great five-star rating and boost us up in those rankings. We really appreciate it. It's it's a damn crime. It's just because we talk too much shit, but we're just out here telling the truth, guys. Now I'm going to hand it over to Tom, who's going to
3: tell us what we're going to be listening to this week. Thank you very much. I have the Albinator here. I'm going to get its uh, suede pants and bedazzled paisley jacket off of it, and uh, just kind of see what it's got coming to us next week. So, without any further ado, I'm going to give it a spin. Next week, we will be listening to, oh, God, everybody's going to hate us for this one. Surfer Rosa by Pixies. Are you sure it's not the Pixies, Tom? I'm pretty sure it's not the Pixies, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure also that they're not pretty sure it's the Pixies. (laughs) Because, yeah, yeah, it gets... Pretty interchangeably referred to in popular culture, but uh, I know this album well enough to know how I'm going to vote and know what I'm going to say, and y'all are going to hate us for it. So
0: I, I don't, I don't know it that well. So uh, I'll, I'll look forward to that. But uh, I'm going to
3: throw an anecdote out here. By the way, is that I have Surfer Rosa on vinyl. And uh, I also have an eight year old son. And for those of you who are not familiar with the vinyl, with the, the album Surfer uh, yeah, Rosa, breath, it, it has a very well endowed, very attractive woman kind of doing a flamenco pose on the front of it. And I've put it on the record player, and he has been like transfixed by the album cover, just like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> like, So I think he might, in some future world, be talking about his sexual awakening as a a result of the Pixies. And this is how you get Pixies fans, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Okay, well, we look forward to that discussion. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Oh, we didn't have anything from the grand old mailbag this week, but we encourage you, if you have complaints, if you want to tell us we're right, you want to tell us we're wrong, you want to correct us about something about Beck or any of the podcasts recently, please write us at 1001 complaints at gmail. We will take those letters into our heart and consider carefully everything you have inscribed. Now, we're going to close it out for the week. It's been lovely chatting with you all. Thank you again for listening. For 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob. I've been Tom.
1: Hey, I'm Marty. See you later.
0: Boosh.